0: Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. We saw last week that finally, on the way down the mountain, Peter, James, and John seemed ready to listen about Jesus' coming death and to learn about the implications in this shift in their thinking. Uh, but they were left with some questions about how all of this fit together. They, they knew the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew that Malachi 4, 5-6 through 6 said that, that God was going to send Elijah the prophet before the great and uh, terrible day of the Lord. And that he would restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that he would not come and smite the land with a curse. The scribes taught that the literal flesh and blood Elijah who was taken up in a chariot of fire to heaven without dying would come back performing miracles and that the people would hear this Elijah and that they would repent and that once the people had repented, the Messiah would come and rule over them and that Israel would at last overthrow their oppressors and rule over the entire world. If Elijah wasn't going to come as a miracle-working public spectacle calling everyone to repent, then clearly they had misunderstood. So they asked Jesus to clear up their misunderstanding. They said in Matthew 17.10, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus' answer is telling In 11 through 13, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. The implications here are clear. John the Baptist was the forerunner, spoken of by Malachi 4, 5 through 6. But his preaching did not lead to a massive revival. This time of Jewish repentance, this time of covenant renewal, they, instead of listening to this Elijah, they did to him whatever they wished. Alluding to his murder... And then Jesus, of course, adds this dreadful detail that not only did they kill, just like they killed John the Baptist, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands as well. The hearts of the fathers were not turned to their children. The, The hearts of the children were not turned to their fathers. And the outcome would be that the Lord would come and smite the land with a curse. It wouldn't be covenant renewal. It would be Israel's going to be destroyed. Can you imagine the rest of the walk down the mountain? So much to process. Elijah's not coming like we expected. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy and he was murdered by those to whom he was sent. Jesus really is going to die. The covenant's not going to be renewed with the Jews. They're sealing their fate by rejecting the Son of Man. This Jesus that we love so much really is going to be killed. This great and terrible day of the Lord is not coming on the Romans but on the Jews. That's a shift, isn't it? God is going to come and smite the land, Israel, Jerusalem, even the temple with a curse. I'd imagine that they walked for quite a while down the rest of the mountain in silence as they tried to come to grips with what they had just heard, as they tried to process it all. This morning we're going to see what happened when they got to the bottom of the hill and how it's related to the two narratives that preceded it. Jesus is going to die and leave them. And because of that, it's time to get ready to serve like Jesus. Matthew 17, 14 through 18. When they came to the crowd... A man came up to Jesus falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son for he's a lunatic and he's very ill for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Now doesn't Jesus seem unusually irritated here? Uh, Even angry in this narrative? Well, um, It's a good time to remind ourselves that there's a such thing as righteous anger. And when Jesus is angry, it's for good reason. You can guarantee that, right? Uh, And it's sinless anger. Which there is a such thing as, isn't there? Like the Transfiguration, this story is recorded by in all the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And by pulling from each account, we get a fuller picture of exactly what happened. Mark 9.14 tells us that when they came back to the disciples, the other nine, so you've got Peter, James, John, and Jesus, they come back to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with the other nine disciples. Right away we get a better understanding of Jesus' testiness, don't we? Jesus gets back to the bottom of the hill with Peter, James, and John with this heavy stuff on his mind and the scribes are arguing with these nine disciples. We've learned about these scribes in the last two narratives, haven't we? Remember in Matthew 16:21 that he must Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. They are representatives of the very people that are going to kill Jesus. And again in 17:10 through 12, why did the scribes say... Remember the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were drawing back on the scribal teaching that Elijah must come first. They didn't understand anything that was going on. And then Jesus' answer was that Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came. And they who, the scribes, did not recognize him and did to him whatever they wished. Whatever they He held the scribes responsible for even the death of John the Baptist. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at... Their hands, the scribes. So he gets to the bottom of the hill and these people who he's just said are going to be responsible, are responsible for John's death and will be responsible for his death, are arguing with his disciples. There's some deeply held animosity here. Brokenness, resentment, anger, a desire that they would change on some level in his heart toward these scribes. And when they get down to the mountain, they're arguing with the disciples about what, well almost certainly, whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. Seems to be the running theme throughout the rest of the book of Matthew, doesn't it? And they're likely using the disciples' inability to help in this situation as a point in their favor. So you can't cast this out and you say you're the disciples of the Messiah? And you can't cast out this demon. This morning we're going to consider a pleading father, the powerless disciples, appointed rebuke, and then a pity-induced healing. Let's begin with this pleading father and think about him a little bit. In verses 14 and 15, "...when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls in the fire and often in the water." So now, out of this intimate yet somber moment that Jesus shared with Peter, James, and John, they show up at the bottom of the mountain to a chaotic, conflict-filled mess. He's already emotional, and this is what he comes down to. It kind of puts you in the mind of when Moses returned from receiving the Ten Commandments on Sinai and the people had broken out, doesn't it? The mess that was down there. Let's consider first the Father's urgency. All it says in Matthew's account here is that a man came up to Jesus. We don't get a full picture of the urgency just from Matthew's gospel, but we get help from Mark 9, 15 through 16. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running to greet him. So it's already chaotic. There's a crowd arguing, scribes and disciples and a big crowd around. Jesus comes and he's flocked by everybody running to him, including this man in a panicked sense of urgency. So, in addition to that, not only does the Father run to Jesus with the crowd, but Luke tells us of a verbal cue that communicates his urgency. And Luke 9, 37, on the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large group met him and a man from the crowd shouted. So he's there, he's being ran out and shouted out because of the urgency of this situation. This man's desperate, isn't he? Have you ever had one of your children hurt? you got kids and you've had one of your kids hurt? Um, Or you've had to helplessly watch them suffer? Some people here might have had to watch their kids suffer for a long, prolonged amount of time. that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. That's what this guy's been going through. He was coming thinking he would get help. The disciples are unable to help. And now here's the last-ditch effort. You can feel the urgency that this man undoubtedly had and that he's communicating by running, by shouting. But we don't just see urgency, we see humility. He's, look, he's falling on his knees before him. And saying, Lord, falling on his knees before him first. That's a posture of begging, isn't it? This is the posture of absolute helplessness. We fall before a person when we know that there's nothing that we can do and we at least hope that there's something that they can do for us. This posture of pleading, please, I have nothing. It hurts to even think about, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, that sort of poorness of spirit, spiritual destitution, is the ones who, those who come to that point are the ones that will inherit the earth. Remember that from Matthew 5.3, don't we? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. We must have this sort of humility if we ever expect to be helped by God or to be used by God. Either one. If you're not to that point, I have nothing. I only have you. You are the source of my everything. It, you cannot expect to get anything. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Jesus is the vine. We are merely the branches. We must abide in him and he in us, and then we will bear much much fruit. For apart from him, we can do very little. No. We can do nothing. 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 This, The address also after this, though, is a sign of this humility. What does this pleading father call Jesus? He calls him Lord. Not buddy, not pal, not my homeboy. It is a term of respect and deference, isn't it? It's this term, Lord. Now, I'm not ex- exactly how sure how much we should read into this phrase. It's sometimes used as a reference to deity. It's sometimes used as a test of loyalty to Caesar by asserting his deity above everything else. Sometimes it just means sir, but it's higher than me. At the very least, it's you're higher than me when you call someone Lord. We know that Jesus warned not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But, But we can say that he at least recognized Jesus as a man of God who he at least hoped had the power to heal his son when he knew that he couldn't. When we get to the point of desperation, when we get to the point when we have at least enough faith, imperfect though it may be, that we plead with God, isn't it gracious of Him to so frequently condescend to help us, even when our faith is way weaker than it should be? Just a sliver of hope. How many times have you prayed and not believed it like you knew you should when you prayed, and He still came through and answered the prayer for you? How many times? And lastly, this pleading Father, we we look to his compassion. Lord, have mercy on my son. He's a lunatic and is very ill. He often falls into the fire and often in the water. We've seen this word here that's translated mercy this time several times, but since it's translated different at different points in Matthew, we don't recognize it's the same word. Earlier, it's been translated often as compassion. When Jesus ate with the tax collectors and the sinners, then the Pharisees had a problem with it and they asked Jesus, why? Is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard this and he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion. Same word. You see somebody hurting. I desire compassion. It's not I'm going to separate myself from these tax collectors and sinners. They need help and I have compassion. I see their need and I want to go fill their need. That's this word, this compassion and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Later, Jesus has said it again even, when the Pharisees had a problem with the disciples plucking heads of grain to eat on the Sabbath. And he said, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion, same word, and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. So it's safe to say that this pleading father is speaking Jesus' language. Lord, have compassion on my son. Jesus loves compassion. Guys, if you're not compassionate, you are nowhere near the heart of God. You're not. If if you became calloused and your compassion is gone, you have strayed from the heart of God. It's happened to me before. This pleading father is also... He's not asking for his wants to be satisfied. Or in this case, he's not even asking for his own need. His heart goes out to his son why for he's a lunatic you're like what well the lo- the word lunatic it means l- moonstruck it's actually if you think about the word lunar a lunar eclipse the the moon lunatic that uh, they they the word in ancient belief was that mental illness or madness was caused by the influence of the moon it's kind of a superstitious belief but that's what they thought The Greek word was used to describe what we now understand to be various nervous disorders, including epilepsy that caused convulsions. But he was a lunatic, and we also know that he's demonically possessed. The father sensed what Jesus verified. You know, later we see here that Jesus cast the demon out, but in Luke 9, 39, the father actually mentions it. Luke says that the father said, "...a spirit seizes him." His affliction wasn't simply psychological or mental, but it was demonic. In Mark nine seventeen, we see that he was possessed with a spirit that made him mute. So in addition to having seizures, the boy was unable to speak. And apparently death as well, we see in verse 25 of Mark, of Mark 9. None of these nervous disorders or physical ailments are always a sign of demon possession though. And that's good news for Cody, right? We don't have to be worried about Cody because, hey, he's got epilepsy. So obviously, he has a demon. No, we know from what we saw earlier in Matthew 4:24 that Jesus separate that the Matthew separates these elements. The news was spread throughout all Syria that that Jesus was healing those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and healed them all. So it was, Matthew was showing that he could heal all types of ailments, demoniacs, spiritual, epileptics, mental, and paralytics, physical. But demonic possession can manifest itself in physical ways. In Matthew, we've seen demonic possession cause blindness, muteness, deafness. And in this story, we see that it can be the cause of epilepsy as well. So here it's the cause of epilepsy, it's the cause of deafness, it's the cause of muteness. It's all the result of this demonic activity in this young boy. So obviously, he's very ill. Last thing, the descriptor it gives us there. This epilepsy was unusually serious. Well, epilepsy can get so out of control that it is very serious, can't it? Uh, this epilepsy here is so severe that he often falls into the fire. I mean, if you fall into the fire once, that's kind of a big deal, right? This dude didn't once fall into the fire because of his epilepsy. He often falls into the fire. Of course, they had a lot more fires at that time because they didn't have central, they didn't have an HVAC. So he often falls into the fire and he often falls into the water. Can you imagine the scars that this boy must have had on his body from often falling into the fire? Can you imagine the pity you'd have looking at your disfigured son? And he's tormented by these things. He can't talk. He can't hear. But you still love him. He's messed up. But you love him. Because of these unattractive scars, that probably shunned by his peers. He was in constant danger of drowning or burning up. The father or some other member of the family probably had to stay nearby the boy at all times to make sure that he didn't kill himself because of one of these seizures. This pleading father is undoubtedly filled with even more urgency because of the powerless disciples that we move to next. What happened here in verse 16? I brought him to your disciples... And they could not cure him. Undoubtedly, this man didn't come looking for the disciples. This man came looking for Jesus. Jesus' reputation as a great healer was known throughout all of Israel. Everyone in Israel knew of Jesus' power over evil spirits. But Jesus wasn't there. So this man turns to the nine disciples who were there. And you might think, well, that's silly. These disciples are are not Jesus. But... Don't forget that when Jesus commissioned the disciples, he said to them in ten five through 8, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, do not go the way of the Gentiles, do not enter the way of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. And we know they've been successful. Luke 10 tells us that the 70 returned uh, with uh, joy, saying that, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And, he sa- and, and then in Mark sixteen thirteen, in casting out many de- demons, it speaks of the disciples, casting out many demons and anointing many with oil and healing them. So these nine disciples obviously thought they could perform this exorcism. Because they tried. They wouldn't have tried if they didn't think they could do it. But then they tried to do it, and what happened? They failed. Unlike many times before, they utterly failed. So what are we to make of this? They now fell where they once had succeeded. What had gone wrong or changed? Their failure now was not due to the fact that Jesus wasn't with them because he wasn't with them in those other occasions either. He sent them out to go do these things. They still had Jesus' promise and his power, but they couldn't cure the boy. Why? Well, they asked that question in our next section and Jesus answers it, but we're going to look at that next week. For now, suffice it to say that they should have been able to. That's the point. They should have been able to do this, but they couldn't. And we need to learn a few lessons from this. First, I want to give you a gut punch lesson, okay? Past successes in ministry do not guarantee future successes. Because you've done great things for the Lord, it does not mean you will be able to today or tomorrow. Do, do you remember past times of spiritual victory, of spiritual effectiveness? Scripture encourages us to look back to those times if we're no longer there. In Revelation 2.5, remember the heights from which you have fallen. And do what? Repent. If you're not where you used to be, don't be satisfied. Look back. Consider the heights from which you have fallen. Why are you cold? Why are you indifferent? It's not okay. Consider the heights from which you have fallen and repent. And do the deed you did at first or else I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. seems that a microcosm of that has happened to these disciples. You cannot rest on your laurels. You must continue in humility and dependence. You must keep the first things first. You must labor in prayer and you can't become distracted. Reminded of the parable of the sower... Where it mentions the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. Enter in and choke out the Word and what happens? It becomes unprofitable. It becomes unfruitful. We should not just be seeking to return to where we were either. We should all desire to grow to spiritual heights that we've never before seen. And that's available. But I don't want to give you a gut punch. I want to give you an encouragement. Sanctification is not a straight line for any of us, is it? It's not always better. We like to think, oh, sanctification, always getting better and better. It's more like this, isn't it? It's not a straight line. It's not a straight line at all. These disciples were temporarily away from Jesus due to circumstances, and when that happened, they faltered. It was their own fault, but it happened. But all these men, except for Judas were true believers, weren't they? And all these men went on to do greater things than they had ever done before, even after this failure. God delights in restoring men who have fallen from their former effectiveness. He delights in that. He doesn't begrudge it. He loves to do it. Run back with full expectation of being received and reinvigorated. And lastly, I gave you a gut punch and an encouragement. I want to give you a grave warning as well. And this is, this is why this matters so much in this story. These disciples represented Christ. And by not having their faith rightly placed, by not being prayed up and ready when the need came, they failed to be able to perform the task that was needed of them at that time but you've got to realize they represented Christ anyway you represent Christ when you succeed and when you're not where you should be and because of that you fail you still because you claim the name of Christ you still represent Christ just like these disciples did they just represented him poorly and I've been there haven't you can any of you relate to that Times when I've been cold and distant in my walk. Times when I've not been prayerful. When I've not been in the Word like I should be. When I just wasn't spiritually minded. Times when I was not walking in the Spirit. And I've had people come and look to me during those times when I felt completely blindsided. And I'm like, oh, I wish you weren't coming to me right now. Have you felt it? Because I'm just not right right now you been there? They knew me to be a Christian. They knew me to be a pastor nonetheless. And they come to me for direction, for counsel, for comfort, for whatever. And I've completely botched it. Sure, I said a few good things. Quoted a scripture or two. Maybe even a Puritan and a Reformer to show that I really know my stuff. But it was powerless. It was dead and powerless. And I knew it. And undoubtedly, they knew it. And unfortunately, our ineffectiveness can affect the faith of men who look to us as representatives of Christ. Mm. Let that hit. And the reputation of Christ, who we're supposed to represent well, is hindered. The scribes are using their failure as fodder to argue against the disciples and against Christ. Because the disciples failed. And the failure of the disciples seems to have hindered the faith of this pleading man even. You say, well, how do you see that? Well, that's in, in Mark 9, 22. The, the pleading man, this pleading father said, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can... Do you know who you're talking to? If you can. And then Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Your disciples failed and now I'm wondering, can you do it even? Guys, that's what we do to people when we're not ready and we represent the risen Christ and they come to us and we have no words for them. We have no help for them. We have no answers for them because we're not where we need to be. And their faith isn't just diminished in us. Their faith is diminished in Can you even do anything to help me? Of course he can. Do we not feel the grave responsibility to represent the Savior well because we represent him one way or the other? Don't we? Jesus is angry at these disputing scribes who have seen enough of his miracles to absolutely authenticate his Messiahship. He's angry with the faithlessness of the disciples which led to their failure to deliver this young boy. He's angry at the doubt that he clearly sees in this father that has partially been caused by the failure of his very own disciples. So now we can see why we get this pointed rebuke, can't we? Of course he's mad! That don't seem right by Jesus. What's going on? This is what's going on. Of course he's mad. What else would he be? And he gives this pointed rebuke in verse 17. Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? In this pointed rebuke, we see a declaration and two how long statements. First, this declaration. He he declares something about them, doesn't he? It's an old refrain throughout the book of Matthew, and he declares it again. You unbelieving and perverted generation. There's a few things we need to notice about this declaration. First, we need to notice that when he says this, he's echoing Moses. Moses. Deuteronomy 32, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children, speaking of Israel, because of their defect. They are a perverse and crooked generation. And Deuteronomy 32, 20, then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness. There you go, right? He's at... So Jesus comes down from the mountain from being with Moses and Elijah. He sees the people breaking out in a way reminiscent of how Moses found the Israelites when they came down from Sinai. And he speaks just like Moses with this prophetic denunciation. And who's, he, who's, he, uh, who's this rebuke to? Well, he's speaking to the whole generation. It's not an individual. It's, it's the whole generation of Jews at that time. Moses is speaking to the people as a whole, and Jesus' complaint sounds similarly general, doesn't it? But as we've considered, it's been provoked by the failure of his own disciples. Just like Moses' anger was kindled by the peculiar failings of Aaron when he came down, the disciples' lack of faith represents the failing of the people as a, of a, as a whole. If even these disciples from their position of special privilege don't have the faith to function in the power that Jesus has delegated to them, what hope is there even for the whole generation? We see Jesus speaks of the coming destruction of this generation repeatedly throughout Matthew as we've highlighted again and again. Uh, 11, 16, 12, 39, 12, 42, through, 41 through 42 and 45 and sixteen-four, and on and on. Read those on your own. But it's an important theme for Matthew, isn't it? Earlier, Jesus uses this phrase, a wicked and adulterous generation, which calls to mind this Old Testament imagery of Israel as God's unfaithful wife, who he's going to put away. And that's the idea. Israel's being put away. It culminates in Matthew 23, 34 through 38, where he sends all these prophets to them and they kill them all. And he says that all these things will come upon that generation because of that. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you together as a children, as a hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. unwilling. Behold, your house or the temple is being left to you desolate. It's all that same thing. It's all, it runs all the way through Matthew. So that, it, it, there's echoes of that behind this. Why are these ideas on Jesus' mind? Well, it's exactly what Jesus discussed with Peter, James, and John coming down the mountain of transfiguration where he says, I say to you that Elijah already came and they didn't recognize him. The whole generation is responsible for the death of John the Baptist and they're also going to kill him as the son of man and that he knows that God's going to come and smite that land with a curse. So it's on his mind. So he he gives this Moses-like rebuke. This declaration, you unbelieving and perverted generation. And then he gives these two how long questions. In declaring the generations as unbelieving and perverted, he echoes Moses. And now in these how long questions, he echoes Elijah, if you know your Old Testament, doesn't he? Remember on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings eighteen twenty one, Elijah came near all the people and said, How long will you hesitate? For how long hawk ye between two opinions, right? How long? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word when Elijah had done it. When Elijah asked the, this question, the people did not respond. Neither would this generation. But one of these how long questions is directed to his disciples who he will restore and who will head up a new people, a new ecclesia that he already promised to build in sixteen this, how long will I be with you? He knows that soon he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed. Jesus is not going to be bodily with them forever and he wants them to be mature. He wants them to grow up. He wants them to grow in faith. He wants them to grow in power. They're leaning on him too much. He's exasperated by that. He knows I'm going to die and you can't handle things like this because you're not where you should be. Matthew Henry says it this way. Will you always need my bodily presence and never come to such maturity as to be fit to be left? The people to the conduct of the disciples and the disciples to the conduct of the Spirit and their commission. Must the child always be carried and will it never be able to go out alone? If you have children, you've felt this exasperation when your kids are growing up. They're getting to their teenage years and they refuse to take responsibility and put away childishness. You know how that feels? Like, hey, you're old, you are You can't sit and play iPads all day. There's things that need to be done. You've got to grow up and take responsibility and start doing things that matter. It's that sort of feeling. As pastors, we know it too. When you refuse to minister in the gifts of the Spirit and carry out your, and you carry out your church membership like spectators instead of participants. How long shall I be with you? You must go on to maturity. You, not the pastors, not some that you see as, a spari- as, as especially spiritual few, not, not them. You have to be the compassionate ones who feel the needs of the people. And now this second how long question. Is much more shocking. How long shall I put up with you? Man, that one hits, doesn't it? How long shall I put up with you? Here we see the threat of coming judgment on that generation as a whole. Can you imagine being in Jesus' shoes? He knows that he's the sovereign Lord of creation he knows that he can call fire down out of heaven and devour his enemies he can he could burn up the scribes the Pharisees and the Sadducees Herod the Tetrarch the unbelieving unrepentant masses just like Elijah did the prophets of Baal he can do it can he he can call to legions of angels to come and make war against all of them he can do it can he and that time's coming but it's not yet and while Jesus is showing compassion and patience to this generation, these things are going to come on that generation, but he's now not destroying them. They think they're in charge. He's in charge the whole time. And he's extending his mercy and his patience to them. And the scribes are responding by arguing with him, challenging him, arguing against his ministry with his disciples when he's not even there. Even though he's done all more miracles than all the Old Testament prophets combined. Yet he's still putting up with them. And he's graciously warning them by saying this. How long will I put up to you? It's really a call to repentance. Guys, your days are running out. Do you think I'm going to let this go on forever? The answer is no, it's not forever. It's not forever. Not with the rebellious and not with the wicked. His patience with them is not forever. It's like those who mock God today as the U.S. has become more immoral more corrupt, and more blasphemous. And God is delaying judgment. And people are doubling down in their rebellion. The same cry should go out today, shouldn't it? How long will I put up to you? And it seems like the more you preach the gospel to people these days that are hardened in their sin, the more that they will spit it back in your face. Just like that time. But did judgment come? Yeah, because it does. And it will. You, on a microcosm, you as an individual, if you're here and you're still a rebel to the ways of God and you're living in your immorality, you're doing things you know that are wrong, you've refused to repent of your sins, you believe Jesus is Messiah, yeah, but you're still captive to your sins and you won't give them up, the same thing can go to you too. How long will I put up to you? Right now there's an extension of grace, but how long will I put up with you? It's still a cry for the sin-sick soul, isn't it? But in the midst of that, what do we see? We see a pity-induced healing. He comes out of this pointed rebuke and you get a pity-induced healing in verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, "...bring him here to me." And Jesus rebuked him. And the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. We're going to highlight here again the compassion of Jesus. He was asked to have compassion and what does he do? He has compassion. Even though he was fed up. Even though he was angry. Even though he felt exasperation. He had compassion. That's the character and nature of God on display, isn't it? Even when his anger is kindled, his compassion is still an inherent part of his nature. It never diminishes, even in his anger. That's true of God the Father, and that's true of the God-man Son, Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel like people can't or won't do what needs to be done? You ever feel that way? Like everything's falling on you, and you're being underappreciated or overutilized or... Most importantly, you want to see others grow to, to what they can and should be for their own joy, their own benefit, their own eternal reward. And because you know you're not going to be around forever. It can be frustrating. It can even be anger-inducing. I want to give you three calls, though, when, when you get there. Because you will. I bet all of us have been there on, at some point. I see some the heads nodding and I see that some that won't, won't want to show their cards. But we've been there, haven't we? I want to tell you to be encouraged, to be warned and to be exhorted. First, be encouraged. Why? Because the exasperation you feel is not inherently sinful. You can feel it. You can express it even. Jesus did. If it was sinful, then Jesus sinned. Jesus did it. He felt it. He expressed it. He didn't sin. So it's not inherently sinful. Be be encouraged by that, but also you've got to be warned. Why? Because you ain't Jesus. That's the main reason. You're probably not doing as much as you like to pretend you are. Do you know that? And in your heart, you probably do know that if you're honest with yourself. You know how much time you waste. How much you term I use you g jack around. You just you yeah I'm so busy except for the times that you're not. Do you want to highlight all the things you do do and ignore all the things that you don't do? All the time wasters. Furthermore, others are often doing way more than you're giving them credit for. Do you know that? Do you know you're not omniscient and you don't know everything they're doing? You don't know all the things that they're involved with. You don't know how they are serving the things that they are doing that no one ever sees or how they're thinking in their heart of how, the, the, how they're using their time is the best use of their time. You don't know those things. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. You say, well, if they're doing all these things, they should tell me. No, they shouldn't. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So you've got to be careful. Be warned. This situation is never as true of you as it was for Jesus here. And also here, be exhorted. Sometimes it is more true than not. You are out there. There are times when you are out serving everyone in your circle. It can be true. You can, but you can never use your exasperation as an excuse to do less. What did Jesus do? He expressed his exasperation. He gave his pointed rebuke. But then, what does he say in verse seventeen? Bring him here to me. Bring him over here. He still did what needed to be done simply because he saw the need and compassion compelled him. There's a need. It's got to be done. And I can't just say nobody else is doing it. It's mine to do because there's a need. And I hurt for people who have needs because I've got the heart of God and the heart of God is compassionate. Isn't it? We're not taking score. Sure, Jesus wanted the disciples to be where they needed to be so that they could do what they needed to do. But his compassion compelled him to pour himself out in service regardless of what anyone else did or didn't do or could or couldn't do. Didn't matter. You don't get to just take your ball and go home like a spoiled little baby because other people are not loving and doing like you think they should. How many people have left church Somebody didn't shake my hand They didn't talk to me as much. They talked to somebody else more than they did me They didn't sit with me at the fellowship meal How many times Why Why don't you be the compassionate person That looks for somebody that's not being engaged And you go and shake their hand You go talk to them You sit with them at the fellowship meal Why Because you're a consumer and not a minister That's why can you say amen? You better say ouch. Right? Jesus had the Father bring his pitiful son to him. And we see what happened. Matthew and Mark nine twenty through 22, we get a, bit, a bigger picture of what happened. They brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling on the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. The demon couldn't contain itself in the presence of the holy. Have you noticed that sometimes when you are are where you need to be, wicked people can't even stand to be around you? And they'll be even more wicked because they're in your presence? Be that person all the time. Be that guy. It lashed out trying to destroy the boy. That he was inside of, and Jesus felt compassion. Then he asked a question to the Father, it tells us in Mark. He asked the fa- Father, He said, How long has this been happening to you? Jesus takes an interest in the hurting. He actually engages the people. He doesn't just fulfill the request and move on. It's not like, Oh, he needs to be healed. I guess I'll do that. He, uh, he, he treated this pleading Father like he was an actual person or something, and like his hurting mattered to him, not just to get by him and get past him. I've been guilty of that before too, haven't you? Go through the motions, do as little as possible, check the box, move on. Look around. Yeah, you know, wait, Jesus takes an interest in the hurting, engages the people, doesn't fulfill their request and move on. And he finds out what happened from that this has happened to this voice from childhood. Look around at the hurting around you. Take an interest in the members at church. You gotta you gotta actually look around. There's some... I'll tell you, this, this, is, this is another gut... I'm, I'm gut punched today. Sue me, okay? Don't, don't do that. Don't sue me. But There's people here that are members that don't know who the other members of the church are. They don't know their names. They couldn't have the name and the face and do a match. How are you going to see their hurting... Know what they're going through and be involved in it if you don't know who they are. You've got to look around. You've got to know what's going on. Take an interest in the members at church, in the visitors who are not yet members. Who was that person that came? I don't know. Did you talk to him? Uh-uh. Did you think you might have, ought to, should have? Didn't even think about it. What's wrong? These are immortal souls, people that will never die, and they have real needs. And it's you who's supposed to fill it. Well, the pastor should have went to them. The pastor can't get to everybody every week. But everybody can get to somebody every week. And they can get to somebody new quite regularly if they try, can't they? They sure can. Take an interest in the members of the community who have never visited and know how they're hurting. Know the, We need to know the needs of the community at large and try to be filling them as a church. Pray that God gives you the compassionate heart of Jesus. When you see them hurting, care, ask questions, feel needs, even if others could have, should have, and haven't. Alex Sherwood, is is he here this morning? That's one of the things I really admire about him. He's got a compassionate heart. He might be a little rough around the edges, but he's got a compassionate heart. And he sees people hurting. He, he did a plumbing job for somebody. And now he's organized to get people from the church to go and help her rebuild her rotting ramp and deck. And clean up in her yard because she's disabled and she can't do it on her own. And she can't, and She doesn't have anybody. Why? What, what compelled him to do that? It's called compassion. That's what it's called. And he had it and modeled it. You be like Jesus. How long would Jesus be with them physically to do these things? Not long. He wanted them to step up. And now we are the body of Christ. We are his hands and his feet. Have mercy. And what do we see in the end? We see ultimately Jesus has duh, authority over the demonic. Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. This him rebuked him. He wasn't rebuking the boy. He rebuked the demon. Matthew doesn't make that clear, but Luke and Mark do. When Jesus rebuked the demon, the demon had no choice but to come out of him. The evil spirits made one last attempt to even destroy the boy, crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. They thought he had died. They thought Jesus had failed just like the disciples, only worse, and the boy died. That's what they thought. But of course he wasn't. Evil has no chance of victory in the face of God's holiness. Hey guys, we win down here. Amen? We do. Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. Mark nine twenty seven. He could now play like the other boys with no fear of suddenly being thrown into the fire and burned or into the water and drowned. He would have no more seizures, no more foaming at the mouth, no more grinding of the teeth. He could hear, he could talk. Lastly, I'd like to remind you again of the timid, weak, imperfect faith of this pleading Father. Remember, this father didn't have strong faith. If you can do anything, take pity and help us. Jesus took issue with that, remember? If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the, boy, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Despite the clear imperfections of this father's faith, Jesus was gracious to his son in light of his weak imperfect faith. This should be an encouragement to us as parents to believe God for the salvation of our children. I'm not doing everything perfect. I'm not catechizing like I should. I'm not not praying with them enough. I'm not engaged enough. No, but you are and you care and you're bringing it to Jesus and you know your helplessness and you present it before Him and you you believe God to save them. God, if you're able, if, believe God. Believe, God, that you can take your children, whatever their ailments are, even if it's just their sin-sick souls, and he can heal and he responds to the weakest of faith. That's good news. Jesus is compassionate. He has no desire to destroy you. He, he's not trying to crush us as his children, as people who are believing in him. He loves to show off. When you trust him, he doesn't, like to, he doesn't want you to trust him and then he'll fail you. That diminishes his glory. We trust him and he loves to show off and succeed exceedingly abundantly. More than we could ever ask or think. Come to him. Sinner, come to him. What can he do? He died on the cross for your sins. That's what he can do. He can forgive you. He can pardon you. It's his righteousness, not your own, that makes you right with, with God. Come to him. I'm not where I should be. Well, you can be. He can strengthen your faith. He can increase your faith. Do you think that this healing helped the unbelief of this pleading father? Of course it did. Bring your children to him. Bring the world to him. Why? Because he's willing. And more importantly, He's able to save them. And you be part of that by taking that message to the world. Get ready to serve like Jesus. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. The things that we learn from it, Lord, we thank You for the gut punches that times it steps on our toes, but Lord, the great encouragement, that even though we're not what we should be, that you are abundant in loving mercy and kindness towards your children, that you pardon, you forgive, and you act on our behalf when we come back to you despite our unfaithfulness. God, draw us to yourself. Give us power uh, to reach the nations for your name's sake, your honor and glory. Work in and through us. We can't do it alone, but we can do it if we are grafted into the vine when we are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing, but in you we can do all things. It's in Christ's name we pray, and amen.